Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jerry Pitney, and today I'm joined by Sonia Fantasiello. Sonia, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. The first mother-daughter combo in Paragold Podcast history. We've had some father-son combos, but I don't think we've ever had a mother-daughter. So congratulations for being Thank our first. You. So we... Uh, we know of each other, and we were just talking about before we started recording. There's been a few times I've been over your house because I was friends with Sonia in high school, and I've uh, been over there. I know a, a tiny bit about your story. Um, I know you're not from Paragold originally, um, that you're originally from Cuba. So I, I would love to hear just kind of how you got from um, there to here. Okay. Well, um, in the 1980s, oh, in 1980, uh, there was a uh, you know, people were not happy and have not been happy in Cuba because of mm-hmm. communism for years. Since and for 19- those that don't understand communism, by the way, yes, that please. don't remember, explain to them what communism is. You have no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion, no freedom of press. Um, you pretty much have to follow what the government tells you to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't, you either will be put in jail or you be killed. So that's that just in a nutshell. Yeah. Shell, uh, shell. Sorry. Um, in 1980, um, there was a bus that ran into the Peruvian embassy in the capital, Havana. And some people knew about this. Uh, most people did not, and obviously, I didn't know because I was 17. Um, after the bus went in, a lot of people that were in the area got into the embassy, and this embassy was um, like a mansion with beautiful gardens, and so there was plenty of room for people to get into the actual building and plenty of room for people to get into the gardens. So, so long as they were within that property, they could uh, leave legally uh, Cuba without any problems with uh, the government. After this happened, a lot of people uh, went through the Peruvian government to exile the country. Mm. But uh, at the time, uh, Carter was the president. And uh, he said that he welcomed all the Cubans that wanted to leave Cuba because of the human rights violations and all these other problems and communism. So... He opened the waters for people in South Florida that had boats to be able to go and get their families. Hmm. When they got to Cuba, of course, Castro had to um, fakely accept uh, the invitation from the U.S. government to let these people leave the country. And you mean fakely accept it like... It, well, he didn't want to admit it, there was any violation, and he did not want to admit that he was uh, holding people hostage. That okay. There was a lot of people that wanted to leave the country mm-hmm. that couldn't. So my father had left Cuba when I was seven years old. And I was 17 when in 1980. So when my father left, he left to Spain. And via Canada, legally arrive to the United States and he was here in the United States when that happened. So he what didn't made him leave to go to Spain. 
What's the story? That was that? Um, that was the only visa that was allowed to him to leave for work purposes. Okay. And he had a family member in Spain that had uh, applied for a visa to for him to go to Spain. And so he left back. I guess it was you, your mom. No, it was just him by himself. Okay, but yeah, beh- back back in Cuba, was it just you and your mom? My grandmother. Your grandmother. She's the one that raised me. Okay. Uh, my mother was present. But my grandmother raised me uh, from the beginning. Only child or brothers and sisters that were also in the home with you? Um, I was the only child from my mother and father. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. So when my father was already in the U.S., he was in Miami. He did not own a boat at that time. But he had a friend that had a shrimp boat. Kingfish number two. And you can Google it. And there is such, I mean, it's still out there. Um, my father paid his friend to take him to Cuba. And then there is a, a, a port called Mariel. And that's where the Cuban government was housing all these people that were requested by um, American citizens or residents of the U.S. They had gone to get their family. So basically, uh, the police would say my father would get to the port and request me. Then the police would go to my house, get um, get me, and bring me to this, what I call a concentration camp. And from there, um, we waited uh, three days uh, before we actually got on the boat. And during those three days... Like you and your dad are in the concentration camp? So, th- no, my father was in the bo- uh, on the boat. Okay. Um, let me explain that better. Uh, when he was on the boat, uh, when the boat arrived to Cuba, it, my father wasn't the only one on the boat. There were several other people that had paid this gentleman uh, to to collect their families. So um, there was space on the boat for more people. And my they had a raffle. And my father drew a number and my grandmother uh, got to come with me. Mm. So originally it was limited, so he wanted me to go mm-hmm. with him, but then he got lucky enough to get my grandmother out as well. Mm. But one thing that people don't know is that when um, this Castro allowed this, he was allowing one third of the boat weight to be family members, and two thirds of the boat were undesirable people. These were people that he pulled out of, out of prison or um, they were uh, in mental institutions. Um, wow. And so that's how come if you've never seen the movie Scarface with Al Pacino, it's a very um, mirrored of what was happening in Miami in the 1980s. Um, yeah, I've never watched Scarface, but now I've it's. It's a bit of a violent sure. movie, but it has really good actors. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. uh, the actual beginning footages of that movie are actual footages of the people coming from the Mariel boat lift. Wow. Now, How keep far it, was that journey, by the way? From it's about 90 miles from Key West to, my, to Cuba. Which took how long? Is that well, I left Cuba around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I was 17, had been in this concentration camp for three days. I was... Which, what was the concentration camp like, by the way? Is that... It, it was, um, it was a, 
a camp on the beach. It had uh, bunk beds. Uh-huh. Not for everyone. People were sleeping on the grounds. But some people got lucky enough to get in a tent with bunk beds. And they must have been probably about 20 or 25 bunk beds yeah. in each uh, tent. And so when, a boat, when they call for a boat, say if they call Kingfish number two and all the people went to that boat, then everybody that was still waiting would run to the to the tents so that they could get a place to sleep. Yeah. But, you know, if you got lucky, you got it. If not, you slept outside. And emotionally at that point, are you mainly like, are you, are you scared? Are you excited? Are you both? Because you're going to America, like kind of like what's going on in your mind at that point, just emotionally? Yes. Well, my grandmother, you know, as I said, she raised me. And she told me from the very beginning that the Cuba that I become to know was not the Cuba that she knew. Mm. Uh, she, you know, I was born in 1963 and Castro took over in 59. So I was born within the regime. Um, when I was five years old, uh, I started kindergarten and in Cuba, they do this act where, um, you have to wear a uniform and in, in kindergarten, they give you this handkerchief, which is half red and half blue. And they put it around your neck, and they uh, pronounce that you are a young communist of Cuba. Uh, you know, you know as well as I do that five year old doesn't know anything about that. Yeah. But that was, you know, that's they, they indoctrinate everyone from the very beginning. Uh, my grandmother always told me, "This isn't the real world. There's more to this world than this." And so, even at an early age, she's telling you that always this isn't the way it is everywhere. Always, and so you know, for me at seventeen, knowing that I was going to get on a boat and see my father that I had not seen for ten years, um, to me it was exciting, but it was also a little bit scary. Scary because I I I didn't know what the future was going to hold, other than I knew that I would be protected by my father. But I didn't know the system. I didn't know anything. Wow. So, so eventually you said you're 17, right? And you get on this boat, and it's a 90-mile journey. So you get on there, what did you say? You said 3 in the afternoon? I got there about 3 in the afternoon. Uh, there was a lady next to me, and uh, she started singing the national anthem. Mm. And then I heard it, and everybody started singing it, and then I started crying and then all of a sudden, I started getting sick uh, to <laughs> my stomach. Turbulent waters. Uh, yeah. Well, it was it was it, it's rough even when it's yes, still. Yes, of course. And um, so I started to get sick, and they pulled me towards the captain area, and they gave me lime, and they tried to bring me back to life because I was about 110 pounds. I'm five. Well, I was five seven and a half. So, um, you got really sick in the, yes. And so, and my grandmother also got sick. She was next to me. She got sick, but she couldn't get to me. So at some point, um, you know, after we recovered from the trip, she mentioned to me that she thought I was dead and I, and she couldn't get to me, which was really sad. Yeah. It's sad. How long was the total trip? Uh, we got there about midnight. Okay. If I remember well, um, just a cram packed boat, like just people. How many people were all on the boat? I don't know. Like but 10, it was pretty packed. 10, 15, 100? I would say more closer to 100. Okay. On this little boat. It's a shrimp boat, so yeah, they're yeah. not that small. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, when we got to Key West, 
um, they had a spread of food and clothing that was provided by volunteers, local mm-hmm. churches and, and groups. Uh, so the first thing that they asked us to do is go through the line and eat and then go pick clothes. And then they started moving the people that had come on the boats um, onto buses. And I had my fa- when I got there, I managed to speak to a Marine that spoke Spanish. And I said my father, because my father had left before I was able to get to the boat because he was afraid. His wife had told he had gotten remarried, remarried and his wife told him, you need to come back in case Castro starts shutting things down and then you have to stay and not be able to mm-hmm. come back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So my father left um, and left word with the captain. It, he left probably the day before, if I remember correctly. So when uh, I got to Key West, I was able to speak to this Marine and I t- asked him to call my father that he asked that I call as soon as I got there. And he did. And my father says, I, it said to me, I'll be there in three hours. And mm. that's about what it would take driving from Miami to Key West. And um, several times, some of the uh, Marines that were putting uh, people in buses um, would come to me, my, uh, my grandmother and I, to put us on those buses. And this Marine would say, no, 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 she's waiting for her father. Leave her alone. She's fine. And so he protected me from ending up in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. From in and up where? Here in Arkansas, there's a Fort Chaffee. It's a, it's a uh, military base. I think it's closer to Fort Smith. And a lot of those people were going there. To just live on that base? No, I think they were trying to process all these people that were coming in. Ah. So I'm, I'm not sure what all they did with these people. Some of them probably stayed in Arkansas. Mostly, mm-hmm. uh, most of them probably did not. Uh, but um, three hours later, my father came in. Uh, they released me. Um, I came in totally legal because this was agreed mm-hmm. upon by the government. Mm-hmm. Then uh, we went up to Miami, and my father, you know, took care of us. Um, a few. I think it was a couple of weeks later, we ended up going to a location in Miami to go through the entire uh, paperwork process. Um, Where did y'all live at when you first got there? Oh, my father had a home because okay, he had so been he have living okay. yeah, there. So I had my own room with my grandmother and then I started going to college and I didn't know English at all, wow. uh, but I went to a Spanish college in Miami and I got a computer accounting degree, uh, and I, you know, I learned as much English English as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I met my husband uh, about a year and a half later. How did you meet him? So I, w- I was going to college, and in the evenings, I worked at a grocery store uh, to make a li- uh, extra money. Mm-hmm. And his cousin was the manager to the store, and so he. He says, I'm going to introduce you to my cousin. And, you know, I, I wasn't interested in dating anyone. I was young and I, insecure of who I was going to find or what their intentions would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
I think my husband was probably insecure too, as far as you know who I was. So he sent his entire family through the grocery store to check me out to see if I was pretty enough or nice <laughs> enough or all of that. So anyway, eventually he came to the store and we met. And uh, he asked for my phone number for two or three months before I gave it to him. Okay, I ain't giving you my number. No. And so, but I liked him and he liked me, but I, I just, I was afraid. Um, well, eventually I gave him my phone number and we started dating and then we've been together ever since. Yeah, the rest is history. So <clears throat> did he, when you met him, was he interested in becoming a doctor? So he had just graduated from medical school. Okay. And so I, you know, when we started dating, I really thought that he would go elsewhere and, you know, move on with his life because he, he came to the United States when he was four. From where? From Cuba. In the last uh, freedom flights from Cuba, he huh. flew. I, he didn't come in a boat. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I really thought that he was going to go on with his life. And, you know, because he, you know, he spoke English perfectly. He had been raised here and educated here. Um, but he did do some training in Dallas, but he came back and asked me to marry him. And mm -hmm. then I moved to Dallas with him. And that's where my two first children were born. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sonia and Albert. Right. And then how long were y'all in Dallas before y'all eventually came here to Paragold? Uh, we were there for two years. Okay. And did you go straight from Dallas here? Before we went, to, we came to Paragold, we um, moved to Mountain Home. And that's where Armando was born, my youngest um, there was a, he, my husband was in a, a program, a surgery program. There was a pyramid program. So he was allowed to, uh, to be in the program for two years. And then on the third year he got, he got dropped. Okay. Um, so we, the, the closest, um, state that he could, uh, license in was Arkansas because the Texas had already, the deadline had passed. So he came to Arkansas, he got licensed in Arkansas, and then he, there was a job in Mountain Home. And so he went there while he applied for um, residency elsewhere. And then he loved uh, Arkansas. Mm. Um, I fought him a little bit because <laughs> I... Now, um, we got to get back to Miami. Yes. Well, I mean, I really wanted my family. My mm. family, uh, I mean, God, family, and country. Mm. Um, and, and I say that wholeheartedly, mm -hmm. um, you know, I love the Lord, my have family. Have you had your faith your whole life? Yes. You have. Okay. Yes. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to practice it I I when I was you. there. Yeah. But so I how had did that work. I had it in my heart and I had it, uh, the teachings from my grandmother. Okay. So your grandmother passed the teachings on to you. Yes. Yes. So, you know, that was very important to me. And then, uh, you know, being here in, in the U.S. Um, and trying my hardest and doing the best that I could to protect the freedoms that we have and to protect, uh, you know, all, with love, mm -hmm. all people. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, so you're in Mountain Home. I guess eventually did you go from Mountain Home here to Paragold? We ended up in New Jersey. 
New Jersey. Uh, okay, that's he, a little bit of a... Yes, yeah, detour. Yeah. Uh, we went to New Jersey where he finished his residency. And this time it was internal medicine. It wasn't surgery like the first two years that he mm-hmm. did in Dallas. So he did three years of internal medicine. And when he was there, he was doing uh, emergency room work on the side because, you know, we didn't have... Mm-hmm. Any means, uh, you know, we, we ate and we had clothes, and but we didn't have any extra money, and uh, we really didn't need it. We were happy the way we were, mm-hmm. but, you know, we always um, tried to better ourselves, as, you know, the best we can. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Pergul needed an emergency room physician for a weekend, and he came, and then the staff liked him, and they requested that he came back again, and he liked the town. And then when he got finished with his residency, he got offered a position with uh, the hospital, independent, independent from the hospital, with the hospital's mm-hmm. uh, help. And that was back in 1992. 92. And so I remember then telling him, you know, I really want to go back home. I want to be with mm-hmm. family. I want the children to grow up with our family. And uh, he says, well, we'll, we'll do it for a year. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then it was two years and then three years. And, well, yeah. here we are. <laughs> does it feel at all any more like home now than it did then? It does. Um, you know, it, it was very hard at first because I didn't know anyone. Mm-hmm. And I didn't speak the language very yes. well. There's not a ton of diversity. There is more now. Yes. But at the time, in 1992, I was just actually had a lunch with a guy Um Kenny Ford, who's been on the podcast before, and he was talking about they moved here in 1992, and uh, he started State Farm Insurance, and he said that he was asking about the demographics, and uh, he said, how many um, uh, blacks do you have? Because they asked like, all whites and all that, and he said, how many blacks? Mm-hmm. And he said, six. Is it 6%? I said, no, six. <laughs> and he said, they said all their names. They said, Here's, we have this person that wow. works here. Here's this. Mm-hmm. And so wow. when you come here in 92, right, like people that live in Pergola now, they would say it's not an incredibly diverse city, but especially in 92, I would think you had to have felt somewhat like an outsider, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Yes, well, I mean, I did because of, um, it was mainly the the language barrier. So even Um, at that point, you didn't feel like you were real fluent in English? No, and I was not. I remember going through uh, Sonic and ordering food, and I would have to get my kids to order it. Because oh, wow. they, I think a lot of people just, uh, when they hear the accent, mm-hmm. they freeze. They don't let their, they don't relax and try to listen. Because yes. I think if you, if you try, I mean, an accent is an accent. I speak with people from India and mm-hmm. all these places all the time, as we all do now, mm-hmm. every time mm-hmm. we have issues with anything. Yes. But I think if you, if you relax and you, and you try to listen, I think you understand Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think at the time it was it was very difficult when they heard a different sound. People just freaked out. It's so I would have my kids order for me. <laughs> it's interesting that you said that about you have to just relax and listen because when Sonia came on, one of the things that um, that I was so impressed with at, in our conversation is just the power of listening. You know, and it just makes me wonder how much of that she got from you from someone who at times probably didn't feel listened to mm-hmm. of the power of like hear somebody's like listen to them yes you know, carefully yes um she always says that she's um 
sweet like her dad and mean like her mom. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe she got something from me. Um, you know, but she kind of had to have a mean streak, I'm sure, right, to survive. I mean, communism, and then you go across the ocean, you kind of have to just make a way for yourself in this new land. Yes. That'd be some grit. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I owe all my confidence uh, to my grandmother, mm. you know, and I think that's what, you know, has gotten me to where I am today. You know, my goal in life was to, to, to respect the, our God and to respect people in general, uh, to make sure that my children became productive individuals for our society and for the world. Uh, that's one thing that I always tell my children, raise your children for the world, not for you. Mm. Uh, you know, I see, uh, you know, some parents that allow their children to be brats mm -hmm. and uh, nobody wants to be around those kids. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not saying my grandkids are perfect or that my kids are perfect, but, you know, I'm, I've always been the, the one to to criticize them when mm -hmm. I think they're not doing something correctly. Yeah. Rather than just always telling them you're amazing whenever, in fact, actually you're not being amazing no. right now. Like, no. no, the way you're acting is not right. Yeah, and what you're talking about of raising your kids for the world, I think that is such a needed word because it's like, that's actually a biblical principle. Um, and Chris, who's helping produce today, like we've talked about that, obviously. I mean, you think about, you know, Psalm 127, for example, that says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior and people are like what does that mean and the image is they're meant to be shot out into the world like mm -hmm. you don't just hang on to these arrows for the rest of your life all for me you know it's like no they're to go and impact people that you'll never be able to impact in a way that leaves the world better than they found it yes which is seems to be exactly what you're saying yes and you know going back to to my early years in Paragool, i do have to say that after all those years you know, we think we're different, but at the end of the day, we bo all have the same brains, eyes, nose, all of that. I think, you know, the love that I received from so many people um, was amazing and is continued to be, it continues to be amazing. Um, I, I, I was fortunate enough to, to oversee certain things that were probably not at, as nice, mm -hmm. but that that was very minimum. Mm -hmm. I would say almost a hundred percent of the people uh, were nice to us and mm -hmm. were caring. And uh, you know, I think eventually uh, the, the people that may have had some uh, differences saw that we had the same ideas in mind, and it was to to be a good family and to raise our kids to to become good citizens and, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of people in this town helped us mm. even to raise our own children. Mm. Right. Well, yep. you have a beautiful family and I've had a chance to interact with all of y'all on some level and um, always leave feeling very blessed to have these conversations. I'm curious from uh, your time in Cuba, like, how do you think that, changed you like you know we talk about how your environment the environment you grow up in shapes you for better or for worse right and and you know if you grow up in Paragould, arkansas versus if you grow up in cuba you're going to see the world a little bit differently 
it's just you can't not do that. And so I'm curious, like for you, based off of your experiences, whether it's your dad going to Spain, grandma raising you, growing up in a communist country, um, the boat ride over, have you ever thought about like in what way has that really continued to shape how you live today? Yes. My life experience is what I use to teach my future generations on what to do and not to do and what to protect and not to protect. Um, I feel like, you know, the old values that were established years, years, many years ago should still be here today. There is a little bit of a change, you know, that, you know, we get a little more modern and there's a lot of social media and all of those things. But I think if we, if, if we continue to look back at the basic of raising a family and the basics of loving each other, um, that should never change and mm. that never will change. Mm. Um, and I think if we all carry love for each other, this would be always a better place. Mm-hmm. yes and amen i could not say that any better um there's a lot more questions i i could ask i think that's a great place to kind of wrap up a lot of your story can i ask a question yeah of course well one i have a quick stat too so fort chaffee uh, i looked up yes and twenty five thousand three hundred ninety cuban refugees go to fort chaffee um, in 1980. Yeah, 1980. Yeah. Yes. And in 1980, it was six and a half months of boat trips coming over, and as many as 125,000 Cubans were able to make it over to the States. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of have two questions. One, you, you mentioned two-thirds of the, um, two-thirds of the people that, he would, that Castro would put on the boats were the undesirables, like... Did you experience when you're on the boat, like looking around, like if you saw prisoners or, or, or dangerous people, um, did, did you have fear around being around those people or anything like that? I didn't know at the time. Yeah, I was wondering if you found that out later or at yes. the time. Yes, that's what uh, I found that uh, I found that out later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the people on the boat were just they looked just like I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no difference. Yeah. The other question I, I I have, and maybe this is even just an almost impossible one to answer, but like I can sometimes be a sentimental person, and uh, I grew up in a house from the age of two mm-hmm. until I got married at twenty one. Um, my mother passed away in twenty fourteen, so I don't get to go back into my childhood home. But if I drive by my town I grew up in, I'll like drive down the street and see my old house. Uh, and see what's happened to it, see what trees they've changed and things like that. Like, as you think about, like, your childhood home, being able to take your kids to see where you grew up, like, I'm assuming you don't have the opportunity to go again. And, like, what what kind of feelings do you have of, like, not being able to do something like that? I can go. Uh, but if you look at the American passport, it says that if you go to Cuba and Iran and certain places, you're not protected by the American government. I don't have um, family uh, in Cuba. And honestly, I mean, yes, it's a beautiful island. It's probably the most beautiful island in the Caribbean. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember going in the in the beach and the water going all the way up to my neck and still see my toes. Wow. It, it's just absolutely f- amazing. Yeah. But... 
I, I really don't have any desire to go so long as it's a communist country. I don't want to provide for the communist regime not one single cent of mine. And this is home now. Um, it, it would be nice to, you know, to show my children where I grew up, but that makes no difference. Mm. Uh, I think things are not important. Um, what's important to me is to make sure that they know all that I went through mm-hmm. so that they know to to do everything in the world to keep other people from having, from having to go through that. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you. You know, one of the questions I guess I have also just around your upbringing is, you know, you mentioned that your, uh, your dad was gone. He left um, – your mom wasn't there. Your grandma was one was raising you. I don't know the details behind that, but I do know that, you know, psychologically speaking, we know sociologically, like when a child grows up without mom and dad in the home, that has an impact on their life. And I'm just curious, like from your perspective, like now that you are at the age you're at, like how do you think that has shaped you? And is there anything, maybe even this is kind of a second part question, like that you would say to someone who's listening to this right now, who also maybe has grown up that way, or maybe they're still in the middle of it where it's like, man, like my dad has not been able to be active in my life, my mom not, well, for what are the reasons? So how do you think that's impacted you? And is there anything that you would say to others who have had that same experience? Well, um, going back to that, my father left when I was seven, but the whole purpose of his uh, departure was to get me out of the communist country, okay. not because he abandoned me. Um but, you know, he was absent because he was trying to, sure. to get me here uh, or to freedom. Yeah. Um, what I would say, and, and this is the way I like to live my life, is look at the positive side on everything. Mm. Uh, today, there's a lot of divorces. There's a lot of separations. Sure. But there is, there is hope because uh, you can't really, you can't say, oh, well, I act this way because this other thing happened to me. I think you need to try to better mm. society and better yourself. You can't bring what happened to you, or you can't not, or you should not mm-hmm. use what happened to you to excuse what you're doing now or totally. what you would do to your children. Yes. I think you need to um, use those experiences, negative experiences in some cases, and, and turn them around and make it a positive. And, yeah. and what happened to you that you didn't think was right, make it good for from now on for yeah. your future, for your family, for your generations. Yeah, so make a decision. You're saying, like, don't just be like, well, I didn't have this, and so now, like, I have to act this way. But I didn't have this, and I want to make sure that I do give this to my children. Yes. Or whatever. This situation kind of sucked for me, but you know what, like, I don't have to make that suck for somebody else or I can learn from this, grow from this and choose. Maybe I didn't have the ex- a great example in this area, but I had an example of what I don't want to be true moving forward. That's perfect. And that's the motivation said. I'm going to have to help change. Yes. Awesome. Yes. You got to be positive. You got to move forward. You can't look back at things that may not have gone the way that you, it, and it, this isn't a perfect world. It's never been. Right. It's getting to the point where it's, it's getting a little bit sad because it's, um, a lot of things are happening. People th- take relationships for granted and uh, they move on too quickly. Uh, you know, in the old days, people stay married all their lives. 
some in some cases it was probably not a good idea, but in most cases they just fought through life. We are a change. We're evolving daily. Mm-hmm. You know, there when I'm, you know, I have a happy day and a day that I'm not very happy, and you know, we all go through that. Absolutely, we're humans. Yeah, yeah. Not every day is going to be amazing. No, <laughs> but yeah, you can no. choose what you decide to do with whatever the hand you've been dealt, right? Yes. Get pick the the pieces that were given to you that are good and multiply them. That's excellent. Well, I love to end our conversation with uh, the list of rapid fire questions, which we end every episode with. And so, if you're up for it, I'll okay. go ahead and start. All right. So. Number one, what is it the last show or movie you watched? Or if you don't really watch, uh, what's the last book that you read? Top Gun. Excellent. Talking about the new one, right? Maverick? Yes, That's Maverick. Very, very good. It's the last movie that I've gone to watch. Uh, what is your favorite, either songs or if you don't have favorite songs, favorite band? Oh, goodness. I have too many. As I said before, I... You know, I have Cuban blood. I <laughs> love music. Um, but there's one that, that I do love, and I could say it's my number one. Uh, it's called Josephine, and it's by Chris Ria. And Josephine was my grandmother's name, and it's an absolutely beautiful song. Never heard it. But, uh, you know, I have Happy, Pharrell Williams. Yeah. I have... Uh, That's on my running playlist. It's a very good oh, song to run to. All, all You Need Is Love by The Beatles. I have Sting, Moonlight. Uh, it's uh, one of the songs in the movie Sabrina. Uh-huh. Um, Andrea Bocelli and Celine Dion, The Prayer. Yeah. Uh, La Vie en Rose by Grace Jones. And then I can go on and on and on. So <laughs> you're a music lover. I love music. I, I get up in the morning and, you know, I watch a little bit of the news. But then after that, I while I'm getting ready, it's just music. Yeah. Do you like to find new bands or do you like to just... You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just keep on playing the classics. No, I think, if, you know, if I find a song that I love, I'll add it to my playlist, okay. even if it's a new song. I'm going to send you a list of songs sometimes because i got a passion for finding new music. So I'm going to send you some new stuff. I mean, that's good stuff that you got. Yes. It's classics. Yes. But I like to introduce people to new music as well. Good stuff. Um, what is your favorite meal? Cuban food. Give me a, give me a dish. Like right now, like uh, if I'm like... What's a Cuban dish that you're like, that's it right there? Well, I would say rice, black beans, uh, pork sandaloin, and fried bananas. Okay. You, you a fried plantain. Yeah, the fried, I was like, that's American. It feels like very, like, that's what I eat. Yeah. Yeah. Pla- plantain chips. I used to get those at Trader Joe's. I love plantain chips. It's so good. I make them from scratch. Oh, <laughs> I need to really? over sometimes. Yes. Fried bananas. What exactly is that consistent? Well, of? it's a you know, it's like butter and brown sugar or something. No. No. No, it's uh, you know, a plantain is like a banana, but it's a giant banana. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if you if you you can do it in different ways. We usually fry them, but if you wait until they get ripened, they're sweet. If you um, if you make chips when they're green. Then they're crunchy. Okay. All right. Throw that in there. Anything else? You got the rice. You got the black beans. You got the, you said, you were just pork tenderloin. tenderloin. Mm-hmm. And just fry bananas. Yeah. That'll now, typically in a Cuban family, when you get together on uh, Christmas Eve, it's very traditional to do a pig roast. Mm. So the whole family eats that Are you pig. doing that around your house? Sometimes I do. Wow. 
Thanks for the invite. Yes, come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, We'll have plenty. That'd be great. What is on your nightstand right now? I have uh, a rosary with a picture of the Pope. Yeah. I have a, ro- a picture of my husband and I and a rosary over the picture. Uh, do you pray the rosary? I don't do it as much as I yeah. should, but yes. Yeah. I've, uh, I've heard of others. I, I'm not Catholic, but I, I really do. Hey, there's a lot of beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful parts of the Catholic faith. And um, I actually, matter of fact, I was on sabbatical last year. And over a three-month period, I was able to go visit other churches. And, and the Catholic church, St. Mary's, is the only one I went to twice. Um, because I just, my, even my daughter, when we went in there, she's like, oh, it feels so sacred in here. And, um, but I've talked with people who have prayed the rosary and it's just something about like this, the, I guess the tactile element of it. I've just been able to, they say it's really meaningful. So, uh, I was curious if that was a normal part of your, your practice. It should be. Yeah. Um, give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy. Just an ordinary moment that brings you a lot of joy. When my entire family's together. Mm. What is one thing you're deeply grateful for right now? Freedom. Mm. I'm grateful for, uh, well, first of all, health. Yeah. And second, freedom. Uh, to be able to be free, um, to do just about everything that you want to do so long as you're yeah. a good person. Yeah, I love that answer, you know, because it's... Um, We've asked that question a lot over the years, and nobody ever says, my new truck, you know, or nothing, anything's wrong with that, or, uh, you know, the vacation I got to go on, like, you know, my lake house or whatever else. It's like it's usually something around family. It's always something about relationships, and I love that even, you know, your husband's had a successful career, all of that, still the things that you look at, you're thankful for. It's like it's not necessarily measured and possessions as much as it is like in people. And then I love the fact that you also mentioned freedom because that's another thing that I think I can just totally take for granted. Like, yeah, I've got my family. Yeah, I've got my friends. Of course, I've got my health and I've got my freedom, you know? Um, And yeah, I think those are things that like, I guess we need to be very careful not to take for granted. Mm -hmm. Yes. And your story is a great example of like, hey, there's a lot of people still today that are not experiencing that. Yes. So, well, I really enjoyed getting to hear your story. Uh, there's so much more, I feel like, layers we could peel back and questions I could ask. And so I just want to thank you for making the space to come on and, and share um, a little bit more about yourself. And so hopefully we can even do it again in the future and have like a part two where we dive even deeper into some of these things. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It was, it's a pleasure. And you're right. There's a whole lot more. There's, you know, daily activities that I, things that I had to do that they are not normal in, in a freedom life. Um, so it was a pleasure. Thank you. I'll be happy to be back if, if you need me sometime. Thank you. And Sonia Fonticiella has left the building. Your first time that you've had a chance to meet her, Chris? Yeah, first time. Okay. I've, I've not met her daughter either. So oh, yeah, that's this right. is the first Sonia Fantasiella I've ever met. Yes, because this is only your third time to be in the in the producer seat. Yep. So most important episodes. 
Uh, yeah, you've had some good ones, man. You have come in for the heavy hitters. And so there is so much more. You know, we were walking out uh, the door together after recording this, and she was just sharing with me like three or four stories, just like bang, 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 about her childhood and about, um, I didn't even realize it was basically like forced childhood labor that she had to participate in. Like wow. you're like gone from your family like all week, and you're in this camp, and you're just like working in these fields, and like you go back home to your, like when you're like 10, 11 years old, yeah. things like that. Like it's insane. Like yeah. there's, a lot more stories I yeah. feel like we can pull out. So I thought it was like, we're going to have to bring you back on mm-hmm. after your daughter yeah. finishes the race. Yeah. And so it's a um, unique childhood compared to most paragold. Oh my gosh, man. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all about perspective, man. So, um, Hey, if you're still listening to this, thanks so much for tuning in. If you've not already done so, please check us out on our different social media platforms. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and if you've not done this, I would love for you to go to iTunes. Just take a moment to give us a five-star rating. That helps people to find us more quickly and learn about the incredible people who are living right here in this city. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.